Welcome to the Victory Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. At Victory, we value love in action through growing, connecting, serving, and giving. We work to show God's love and share His truth as we love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ together. Well, take your Bibles and open them to the Book of Ruth. So we're lining up, Tim. We're lining up Book of Ruth this morning. I'm going to do an advertisement for next week, okay? I mentioned Dr. Dave Shoemate will be, be here with you. He is the academic dean at International Baptist College and Seminary, so I have to tell you things that he won't tell you. Dr. Shoemate well, came, to, came to faith in Christ as a law student at Harvard. He and his wife were both at Harvard studying, and through the, the witness of a faithful classmate, they came to faith in Christ. So he has a law degree from Harvard. And then he went on and got his PhD in theology. Uh, he's an expert in Hebrew, and so he's one of the smartest people you'll ever meet, although you won't get that from him when you interact with him because he's also very, very humble, and he's a fantastic communicator of God's word and God's truth, and so I hope you'll come. The Lord has greatly uh, gifted him. He, speak, he and his wife both speak Spanish fluently and have been involved in theological training in uh, Mexico and in the, in the Latin world uh, for a long time, and so you just don't want to miss next week uh, hearing Dr. Shoemate. So please come back. So if today doesn't ring your bell, just come back next week, okay? So have you found Ruth chapter 2? Ruth chapter 2. And we are going to read verse 17. Ruth chapter 2, and we're going to read verse 17. Ruth two seventeen. So she, that is Ruth, gleaned in the field until even... And beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. It was about an ephah of barley. This morning, I would like to settle one of the great biblical questions of all time. How much is an ephah? Would you join me in prayer? Dear Lord, we're so thankful for the time that we have together. I am thankful for Victory Baptist Church, for this lighthouse in Casa Grande. I'm thankful for Pastor Terry and his wife, their faithfulness over all these years. I pray that as they're enjoying family time and this new one that's been born into their family, I pray that you would just give them a great time together. So, Lord, in, in their absence, we think of them and pray for them. And then, Lord, I pray that you would direct us to your truth through your word as we ask this question. How much is an ephah? So, Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, some of you have a study Bible that has a note. And you think, this is easy. I'll just look at my footnote. I know exactly how much an ephah is. In some Bible translations, they actually don't put the word ephah there. They put the actual conversion to what it might be in English today. But we are going to answer the question, how much is an ephah? And we're going to do that using our Bibles. Okay, so keep your finger right here in Ruth chapter 2, because I promise you we will be back to Ruth chapter 2. But I want you to turn to the book of Exodus, okay? Turn to the book of Exodus. I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 16 as we go on a quest trying to answer the question, how much is an ephah? I know that you should not bring up such controversial biblical questions when you're a guest speaker. Okay. But I decided to take the risk. Exodus chapter 16, and would you look at verse 36? Exodus chapter 16 and verse 36. 
And here is the answer to our question. Now an omer is the tenth part of an ephah. All right, so how much is an ephah? An ephah is ten times an omer. All right, I don't, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with the rest of my time. <laughs> we have answered the question. An omer is a tenth of an ephah, so an ephah is ten times an omer, which begs the question, how much is an omer? All right, stay right here in Exodus chapter 16. We'll, we're going to find out how much an omer is. Again, we're using our Bibles here to try and figure out how much an ephah is. Go to verse 16. So Exodus 16 and verse 16. This is when uh, manna is being instituted into the life of the people that are traveling through the wilderness. And there were instructions given on how to gather the manna. And you have here in, in Exodus 16, verse 16, this command. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Gather it every man according to his eating. Okay, and here's the word, an omer for every man. According to the number of your persons, take ye every man for them which are in his tent. So here was the command. Every day you get up and you go out and you gather an omer's worth of manna for every person who's in your tent. Okay, so without the weight exactly, could we deduce from that what an omer is? An omer is sort of your daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread is actually coming that's when jesus prays that he's actually thinking about the provision that god made for the people of israel within the wilderness god made a provision every day of their daily food intake so an omer is basically what a person needed for a day's sustenance in fact if you look at verse 22 every day you were to gather an omer approximately an omer for every person that lived in your tent but what were you supposed to do on friday morning Okay, gather two omers, verse 22. Okay, on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for one man, and that was to sustain them over how many days? Two days. So an omer is what you need for a day. It's basically what you would expect. Okay, so how much is an ephah? An ephah is ten times an omer, or Taking the information we now have about an omer, an ephah is about 10 times what you would need for a daily provision. Everyone with me so far? Let's go back to Ruth chapter 2. So how much is an ephah? Well, an ephah is 10 times what you might expect for a daily provision. But let's get into the background of, Ephes or, excuse me, of Ruth chapter 2. What is going on in this scene? So she gleaned in the field until even. Who's the she that's gleaning in the field? This is Ruth. Ruth has returned to the city of Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi had left the city of Bethlehem 10 years prior. She had left with her husband and with her two sons. And they left because there was no bread in Bethlehem. Which is ironic, because what does Bethlehem mean? It means, in Hebrew, the house of bread. Bethlehem, the house of bread. 
It's a bad deal when the house of bread has no bread. Bethlehem was the breadbasket of the southern region of Israel. It was the place that had the most productive grain fields in southern Israel. And yet there had been a drought. There had been no rain. And when we compare this, especially within the context of judges, and Tim did a great job of saying you need to know the covenants to understand what's going on in the book of Judges. Under the Mosaic Covenant, God had told his people, when you go into the land, if you will obey me, and if you will honor me, I will cause you to prosper in the land. So my friends, if the people of Israel are living in the land and they are not prospering in the land, where is the issue lie? Is it with God and his promises? No, it's with the faithfulness of, of the people of Israel. In fact, God said, if you go into the land and you obey me, I will prosper in the land and I'll send rain and your fields will flourish. But when we get to the book of Ruth, the fields are not flourishing, there is no rain, and there is famine. And that's because the people are not following God's law. As we heard this morning, in the days of the judges, there was no king in Israel. And every man did what was right in his own eyes. And so even the house of bread has no bread. And by the way, when you're reading the Old Testament narratives, the historical narratives, Anytime someone is leaving the promised land, good things are not going to happen after that. This is exactly what happened for Naomi and her husband and two sons. As they leave the land of promise and they go into the land of Moab, they take, uh, the, the sons take wives, but then the husband, Naomi's husband dies, the two, the two sons die, and now Naomi is bereft of her husband and her two sons. And then finally they receive news that the Lord has visited Israel again with rain. And so Naomi makes the choice to return back to the land of promise. You know, of course, that Orpah kisses and leaves, but Ruth clings to her mother-in-law and returns back to the land of Israel. But what are they going to do? The land of Israel is producing its first crop in 10 years. That means that those landowners around Bethlehem are going to have their first payday in 10 years. If you own land, you might be wealthy, but if their land isn't producing anything, what, do, what good does that land do you? And so the land of Israel is having its first pro, uh, productive crop in 10 years, and this is when these two women come back to Bethlehem. I want you to notice something right at the start of Ruth chapter 2, there's this great statement. Ruth and Naomi are now back in Bethlehem, and uh, Ruth gets up in the morning to try and do something about their impoverished condition. She says this in verse 2 of chapter 2, that and Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, let me go to the field. By the way, notice that that's singular. Let me go to the field and glean ears of corn or grain after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And Naomi said to her, Go, my daughter. And then pay attention to this. Verse 3. And she went, that is, Ruth went, and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. Again, notice that it's singular field. And I've got the old King James here. And her half was to light on a part of the field belonging to Boaz. She happens to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, there's some irony there from the narrator. Did she just happen 
to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz? Or is God doing something? God's doing something. This wasn't random coincidence that she just found herself in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. And so Ruth finds herself in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, and she is gleaning. Gleaning isn't that dissimilar from what the people in Israel did when they were gathering manna. Gleaning was a process where you would go behind the harvesters and you would pick up the ears of grain that dropped behind the harvesters. And this is what Ruth was doing. But how much is an ephah? Ruth is gleaning in the field that belongs to Boaz, and after a day of gleaning, she has ten times what she would need for a day's food. But more than that, an ephah is enough for us to know that whoever's field was she was in, whatever person that was owner of the field that she was gleaning in, that that person had a generous and kind heart. My friend, an ephah is far more than a person should expect to get in a day of gleaning. And it reveals for us the fact that Ruth comes back and she has in her arms an ephah of grain reveals to us that the owner of the field that she had been in that day had a generous heart. Let me show this to you in the text here. Who is this man, Boaz, the portion of whose field she had come to? I want you to see Boaz's actions in this particular passage. We won't read the entire chapter, but really almost the entire chapter from verse 3 to verse 17 would just reveal the generosity of this man. Look at verse 9. In verse 9, Boaz sees this widow woman who is now gleaning in her field, and listen to what he says to her. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. Have I not charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? A widow, especially a foreign widow coming back to the land of Israel in those days, would have been at great risk of being taken advantage of and being molested. And so here, Boaz is offering to this woman his protection. But more than just his protection, he is going to offer to this woman abundant provision. Read the rest of verse 9. And when thou art athirst, go unto the vessels and drink of that which the young man have drawn. Not only can you glean in my field behind my harvesters, but you're welcome to the water that we have brought for them to drink. Go down to verse 14. At lunchtime, Boaz said to her, At mealtime come thou hither, and eat of the bread, and dip thy morsel in the vinegar. Not only can you drink the water I've provided, but you can have the lunch I've provided for my workers. But he goes even beyond that. And she sat beside the reapers, and he, the landowner, served her parched corn, and she did eat and was sufficed. That's well beyond the expectations. And then when she gets up from that meal, listen to what Boaz says in verse 15. And when she had risen up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves. That's the place where the, the grain was being gathered and reproach her not. But he's going to go even beyond that in verse 16. 
And let fall also some of the handfuls of purpose for her and leave them so that she may glean them and rebuke her not. What a series of actions here. When, Ruth, when, when, when Boaz realizes that this widow woman, Ruth, is in his field, he says, you can, I, I'm going to order my young men not to touch you. I'm going to extend my protection to you. But then when you're thirsty, I want you to go and gather the water. I want you to drink from the water at lunchtime. I want you to eat the meal that I have provided for my harvesters. Then he personally serves her that meal in that day and time, in that culture, that would have been an unusual thing for the landowner to do, to personally serve a meal to a poor person who was gleaning in his field. And then he says to his young men, drop stuff in front of her on purpose. And don't chase her away from gleaning in the place where we have gathered our harvest. That is a remarkable series of actions. But my friends, it's even more remarkable when you understand the Old Testament background, the cultural and historical background that Boaz was operating in. If you go back to the book of Leviticus, God had a law of how to make provision for foreigners, strangers, and widows in the land. God actually has a law of what to do when you're harvesting your field. And in that law, he gives two main provisions. Two things that he tells the landowners that they're supposed to do when it comes harvest time. The first one is this. In order to make provision for widows and strangers in the land, when you harvest your field, you're not allowed to pick up the gleanings. In other words, the stuff that drops behind the harvesters. You're not allowed to go back and pick that up. That was in the law. And you're supposed to allow these people to come in, especially these widowed women. You're supposed to allow them to come in your field and to pick up all of that stuff that's dropped during the harvesting process. You need to leave that for them. So Boaz is abiding by that law. But there was another law that God gave to the landowners. He said this to them, when you come to the corner of your field, you're not allowed to harvest the corner of your field. Now, when we were reading through the verses here, I said, pay attention to the fact that the word field is singular in this passage. This is a little bit different than what we might expect. It doesn't say here that Ruth came to the field that belongs to Boaz. It says that she came to the portion of the field. That belonged to Boaz. All of that farmland that was around Bethlehem, all of that farmland was divvied up among the different landowners. It wasn't like there was a farm over there and then another farm over there. All of the different pieces and portions of land touch each other. And so if you looked at the farmland, it would have been much more like sort of like a patchwork quilt. Different portions of the field belonging to different people. And those different portions of the field would have been marked out with boundary stones. The Bible calls these landmarks. Those stones were really important. In fact, when you read the Levitical law, it was a capital crime to move the landmarks. Okay? Because if I go up to my landmark and I just pick up that pile of stones and move it a foot, and then I go down to this other landmark and I pick up those stones and move it a foot. What have I just done? I just stole 
a foot strip of my neighbor's field. Everyone with me? Now, when they harvested, they harvested with sickles that they swung in an arcing motion. Now, this provides a, potential, a, a real problem when you get to the corner of your field. Right? If you have square boundaries and corners and you harvest in a sweeping arcing motion, then what's the problem when you get to the corner of your field? Yeah, if you take that last full sweep, what are you doing? You're harvesting your neighbor's grain. So here's the law that God gave Israel. He said when you get to the corner of your field, you're allowed to take that last full arcing swing and harvest. But everything that's left standing, in other words, to get the rest of that grain, you'd have to, you'd have to shorten your swing and you'd have to really carefully hack away, not to, not to get into your neighbor's field. And he says, don't do that. Take the last full swing and leave everything in the corner unharvested. So my friends, here's what the field around Bethlehem should have looked like. If God's law was being obeyed, when those fields were done being harvested, at all of the corners where the different landowners' crops uh, fields met, there should have been tufts of grain left unharvested. You guys with me? That's what it should have looked like. So you should have looked across the fields after the harvesters were done, and you could you could tell you could just tell like the four corners regions here, right, where the four corners meet. There should have just been tufts of grain unharvested, which God said, "Don't harvest. Leave that for the widow and the stranger." God made provision for the widow and the stranger. And guess what? Ruth's both of them. So this law applied to her. But my friends, this story is happening during the days of the judges. And what were the days of the judges characterized by? There was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And remember, for these landowners, this is their first payday in 10 years. What do you think that field looked like? I think it got picked clean. Mm -hmm. Except where? Boaz's field. Maybe there were a couple other landowners that were trying to do the right thing. I bet you most of the other fields that there were guards chasing the widows and all the hungry people. How many widows do you think there were in Bethlehem after 10 years of famine? I bet you they had guards at most of the fields chasing away all of these poor people who just wanted to come into the field and glean and get something. I mean, there were lots of widows, lots of poor people. I bet you there were very strict orders when those landowners gathered their harvesters. Hey, guys, this is my first payday in 10 years. This is the first time we've gotten anything out of this ground. Hey, if you see anyone coming into our field, I want you to chase them away. Make sure they actually had guards at where the sheaves were kept. We have to guard our harvest, chase these people away. And you better be careful when you're harvesting that you don't drop anything. And when you get to the corner of the field, I want you to get everything. My friends, here's what I want you to understand about this man, Boaz. Boaz honored 
the law of God. Boaz is allowing this woman to glean in his field, which is what God commanded. Now, this particular text doesn't tell us that he didn't harvest the corner of his field, but I think we can see that Boaz was the kind of man who would have followed the law of God, so I believe he's not harvesting the corner of his fields. In other words, Boaz is following the law of God. But you can read the book of Leviticus, and nowhere does it say in the book of Leviticus when one of these widows and strangers comes into, the, into your field to glean that you have to let them drink the water you've brought for your harvesters. Nowhere in the law of God does it say that at lunchtime you have to provide a meal for these widows and strangers. Nowhere does it say you have to let the widows and strangers go and glean around the sheaves where you've gathered your harvest. It doesn't say anywhere in the law of God that you have to allow, uh, you have to tell your harvesters to drop stuff on purpose in front of the widows and strangers. My friends, here's what I want you to understand about Boaz. Boaz is someone who, yes, honored the law of God, but Boaz is someone who exceeded the minimum. Boaz was someone who understood from the law of God that God had a heart for widows and foreigners. And so when he had a chance to serve and minister to a widow and a foreigner, he was going to behave and act in a way that matched the heart of God. Are you guys with me this morning? Boaz wasn't someone who was just trying to say, okay, what does God's word say? I'll do the bare minimum. No, Boaz learned from the law of God, the heart of God. And then he wanted to live out as much as he could with his capacity what it meant to have God's heart towards the people that were around him. This is a principle that we find without, with, 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 throughout the scriptures. When we get to the New Testament, Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are criticizing him because they believe that he's violated some jot or tittle of the Old Testament law. Now, he hadn't violated it. But they thought he had, and they're criticizing him, and they're criticizing his disciples. And Jesus tells them this. Too bad you guys have never read your Bibles. Now, these are people who made copies of the Bible for a living. But Jesus goes to them and says, too bad you've never read the scriptures. But you really ought to. You really ought to go read the Bible, Jesus told the Pharisees. Because you need to find out that what God desires is mercy. You see, that law written into the book of Leviticus wasn't written there so that people would just merely follow the letter of the law. It was there to instruct. In fact, that's what the word Torah means in Hebrew. The word law, that's what it means in Hebrew. It was written there to instruct the people that the creator of the universe has a heart of compassion and mercy towards widows and foreigners. And so he writes into his law a provision for widows and foreigners. And Boaz had a relationship with God that says, I don't want to just follow the letter of the law. I want to learn the heart of God. That was the purpose for the law. This is why David can say in Psalm 1, I delight in the law of God. How many of you have gotten to the book of Leviticus and say, I just delight in the book of Leviticus? 
The book of Leviticus is the place that your New Year's resolution to read through the Bible in the year goes to die, right? You're reading along. Genesis is interesting, you know. A lot of good stuff going on in Genesis. You get the opening, book, the opening verses of Exodus, and there's like plagues and cool stuff. Then you get towards the latter part of Exodus, and it's getting a little dry. And then you hit Leviticus. And it's usually Leviticus uh, 14, 68 verses of what to do if you have leprosy. You know? And as you're reading through that, you're like, if I ever get leprosy, I'll know exactly where to come, you know? And you're reading through there, and it's like you, you twist the head off the dove, and you put blood on your left thumb, and if you're poor, you put it on your right thumb, and you know, then you get to the part of, should I round my beard or square it? You know? You, know, you wake up in the morning, you're like, oh, Lord, I'm just so tempted to round my beard. And then you read <laughs> in Leviticus, you're like, thank you, Lord, for delivering me from that temptation. <laughs> but you understand, my friends, that is the book of Leviticus that David is talking about when he says, I delight in the law of God. If you want to delight, and you can... And you should. If you want to delight in the book of Leviticus, you know what you have to do? As you go through the book of Leviticus, you have to discern the heart of God that is being revealed in the book of Leviticus. We need to be like Boaz, who, when he read the law of God, discerned the heart of God. And then do the next step. Boaz wanted to live out the heart of God to the people that were around him. If he discerned in the law of God that God had a heart for widows and foreigners. And then he comes to his field on the first day that he's getting any pay in 10 years. And he sees this woman, this widow and this stranger in his field. It wasn't just follow the letter of the law. It was express the heart of God. My friends, would you please hear me? Our world desperately needs people. Who, yes, obey God's word. But my friends, our world desperately needs people who go beyond just a minimalist approach. We need people who step forward and say, I want to demonstrate, I want to be used by God to demonstrate the heart of God to this world around us. My friends, how does God feel about this world? For God so are you guys with me? For God so loved the world. How does he love this world? That he gave. And what did he give? His only son. My friends, God loves this world. And because he loves this world, he gives. And what does he give? He gives his very best. That is the heart of God towards this world. There's a burden in my heart. We are conservative Christian people. We stand for what the Bible says. And that is true about Pastor Terry. That's true about the leadership here at this church. We stand with what God says in his word. And I understand that we are facing a lot of cultural pressure right now. And there are a lot of people who are compromising what God's word says on very important issues today. And I'm confident that I can say this in Pastor Terry's absence. Pastor Terry, Victory Baptist Church, is not going to compromise on what the Bible says is true 
about these vital issues going on in our world today. But I am burdened that sometimes as conservative Christians standing for what the Bible says is true, that we sometimes just get a grumpy and cold heart towards the world around us. Can I speak to you very, very clearly? There are lots of people that are, that are bound up in the LGBTQA apostrophe, all the letters of the alphabet, that movement and that agenda. There are lots of people that are tied up and bound up in that. And we can't compromise. But we ought to guide God's heart of compassion towards those people. Jesus died for those people. That is how God feels towards those people. And far too often, conservative Christians do not interact with those people in a way that demonstrates God's heart towards them. By the way, God's heart towards them does not include compromising what the Bible says. You cannot love someone and go along with what they do if that's harming them. This week, I was, or this summer, I was at a camp, and there was a young lady there who identified as LG, LGBTQA, and I preached the message, and she actually got up and stormed out the back of the auditorium while I was preaching. And I wasn't saying anything mean or harsh. I was just teaching what the Bible says about human sexuality and gender identity. And I talked to her afterwards. And she said, well, love is love. You know that slogan, love is love. And I just looked at her and I said, if you knew I had cancer and you didn't tell me about it, that wouldn't be love. I love you enough to tell you what God says is true. I want to share the truth, but I want to do it in a way that demonstrates a heart of love and compassion. Jesus Christ died for that young woman. The creator of the universe loves that young woman so much that he would send his only son into this world to rescue her. That's the truth. That's what this book says about this world around us. I just picked on that one issue, but there are all kinds of issues like that. And our world desperately needs people like Boaz, who, yes, obey the word of God, but in their obedience to the word of God, ask the spirit of God to help them to show forth the love of God to the world around us. This is what Boaz did. He discerned from the law of God that God loved widows and strangers. And then he would use his position in life to minister. Not only did he not harvest the corners, not only did he not pick up the gleanings that dropped, he made provision with a generous heart towards this widow and stranger. How much is an ephah? An ephah is so much grain that it indicates to us with great clarity that Boaz was a man who had a heart like God's heart. That's how much an ephah is. So an ephah is way more than just ten times an omer. An ephah is an indication of a heart of a generous man. In fact, Naomi, when she sees an ephah, says this. When, when, when Ruth walks in, with an ephah in her hands. Look at verse 19, the phrase I'm picking right out of the middle of verse 19. Listen to what she says. Blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee. Naomi takes one look at an ephah of grain and says, someone was generous. Yeah, Boaz was generous. 
Boaz is one of my heroes because of the generous heart that he had, the heart of God, and he expressed that to the world around him. But I've got one last answer to the question. How much is Nepha? Yeah, Nepha is 10 times an omer. It's 10 times what you should expect on a daily basis. Yes, an ephah is enough to demonstrate Boaz's heart of God, the generous heart of God that he had. But lastly, an ephah is enough to remind a bitter woman that God has not abandoned her. You got to love Naomi when she gets back to the land. Look at verse 20 of chapter 1. She gets back to the land. She had left the land full, she says. I left this land full. I had a husband and two sons. But listen to what she says in verse 20. She said unto them, call me not Naomi. Naomi means pleasantness. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. For the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord has testified against me, and the Lord and the Almighty has afflicted me. This is the attitude of Naomi at the end of chapter 1, bitter by the events of her life, believing that God has just turned against her. But how much is an ephah of grain? Just read what Naomi says when Ruth walks in with an ephah of barley. Verse 18, chapter 2, And she took it up and went into the city, that ephah of barley, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. And she brought forth and, and gave it to her that she had reserved after she was sufficed so that you could eat and there was stuff left over. And her mother-in-law said unto her, Where hast thou gleaned today? And where wroughtest thou? Blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee. And she showed her mother-in-law with whom she had wrought. And she said, this is Naomi, this man's name whom I, whom I wrought, or excuse me, Ruth is saying this, the man's name whom I wrought today is Boaz. And Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, blessed be he of the Lord. Just compare this. Compare chapter 1 and verse 20. To chapter 2 and verse 20. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me bitterness because the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. But in one chapter, one armful of, of one ephah of barley later, listen to what Naomi is saying. Blessed be he of the Lord who has not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Naomi said unto her, the man is near of kin unto us, one of our next kinsmen. Let me tell you what that phrase means. That means Naomi could hear the wedding bells ringing. <laughs> God is doing something for us. God is working on our behalf. God hasn't forgotten his kindness to us. Ruth, you've got to understand, you have no idea what's going on. It's not just the barley, but the fact that God led you to the heart of a generous man. And you know who that generous man is? He's an eligible bachelor. <laughs> God is making provision for us. When Ruth walked in with arms full of barley and ephah's worth, that was enough to remind a bitter woman 
of the kindness of Yahweh. My friends, between a God who loves this world and a world who so desperately needs to know that love are people like you and me. I don't know if this has ever hit you, but has it ever struck you as strange that God chooses to use us? God, the great creator of the universe, makes provision for the salvation of lost souls through his son, Jesus. But how does that message get to those people who so desperately need to hear it? He's entrusted that message to you and to me. Paul will say this. He's entrusted that message into earthen vessels. The most precious message a man could ever hear, that a woman could ever hear, that a young person could ever hear, the most precious message, the message that they so desperately need to hear, God has invested that in us. And, and Paul says we are but earthen vessels. Let me put that in the vernacular here. That means God entrusted his message to crackpots. We are crackpots. We are imperfect. We have our own flaws. We have our own needs. Would anyone testify with me that you're not all that you should be? That you've got areas that you need to grow in? That you're still learning? That God's still teaching you? He's still changing you? I'm not all that I should be, but I'm not what I used to be, right? And I'm on a path to God changing me. God entrusted his gospel message that the world so desperately needs to us. I love the, the scene of the feeding of the 5,000. This has always struck me about that story. Jesus has the power to feed that crowd, right? We all recognize that. And he could do that any way he wants. He didn't even need the boy's small lunch, did he? No, if he wants to feed that crowd, he could just materialize the caloric need into their bloodstream, right? He could just insert the food in their stomachs. They don't even need to chew if God decides to do it that way, right? But that's not how he performed that miracle. He used a small boy's lunch. And then as that food was being multiplied, who did he give it to? The disciples. Twelve disciples fed 20,000 people. That was work. Couldn't you just drop it in their lap, Jesus? <laughs> in between a satisfying Savior and a starving world are God's people who serve. That's the way he set it up. Why? Because God gets great glory when he can use cracked pots <laughs> to reach a world with the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. God does it so that his name will be made great, that he can use you and me with all of our flaws to do a great work for him. But you know how we need to do that? We need to do that like Boaz. We need to go out into this world that so desperately needs to hear about what God has done for them through Jesus Christ. And we need to go out there with a heart, a generous heart of compassion for this world around us. So here's the last answer. How much is an ephah? An ephah is so much grain that it reminds us that God loves this world and wants to use us to reach this world. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? A simple question, how much is an ephah? 
Well, this, is, this message isn't about figuring out exactly the weight of an ephah of barley. How much is an ephah? In this chapter, an ephah is so much grain from a generous man named Boaz, whom God used to remind a bitter woman that God had not forgotten her. My friends, our world is hurting. People are hurting. They're hungry. Not everyone is, is ready to receive Jesus, but there are many who are. And my friends, we know the satisfying Savior who has made provision for them through his son, Jesus Christ. But in between the starving world and the satisfying Savior are God's servants, you and me. And he wants us to go out in this world, not just in road obedience to the Great Commission to take the gospel to those, but he wants us to go out in this world like Boaz. Boaz wasn't someone who just, in a minimalistic way, obeyed the law. No, he learned from the law the heart that God had to widows and strangers. And he said, I want to have that same heart. God is calling for us to be generous Christians with the heart of God towards those who so desperately need to hear it. That's what God is calling us to. How many you would say, with your heads bowed and eyes closed, I am listening to what the Spirit of God is saying through His Word, and I want to live out a life of God-like generosity, having the heart of God towards this world around me. If that's what God's saying to you, would you just raise your hand as an indication of that? I'm listening to what the Spirit of God is saying. I want to have a heart like God towards this world around me. Let's talk to the Lord. Lord, I'm thankful for Boaz. He followed your law, yes, but he learned from your law the heart that you have towards widows and strangers. And then he said, Lord, let me be used to minister that. He went far beyond the minimum. This is what our world needs, Lord. Christians who share your heart towards those that are lost. God, we have no question what your heart is to this lost world. You make it so clear that you love this world, that you gave your son to rescue this world from their sin. And I pray that we would be the arms and feet and the mouth to get that message out to the world around us. Help us to live a generous life that demonstrates your heart to the world around us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Victory Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to know more about Victory, please visit our website at victoryarizona.org. You can also connect with us on our Facebook page or by emailing victory at victoryarizona.org. We'd love to help you accept and follow Jesus Christ.